And, you know, we talk about quantitative and qualitative as if they were these two different sides of the coin, and they're really not, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're there for two different reasons. Welcome to Department 12, an IO Psych podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Dutina, and today we're talking to Dr. Saeed Islam and Dr. Michael Chetta. Sai and Mike both earned their doctorates at Hofstra University, and like so many of us, they were inspired by a faculty member. Here's Sai. So, uh, one of the most influential uh, faculty members in our professional lives is a guy named Bernie Gorman, who isn't really, I, I don't think he's known outside of the Hofstra alumni community. Uh, but he's really the one who taught us about R, and he really has a love of qualitative analysis and text analysis. Mm -hmm. And he taught us how to do that in R and in all of these crazy programs that uh, you were playing around with. He's <laughs> the one who showed them to us. Sai and Mike are both faculty members themselves. Mike is an adjunct professor at Toro College, and Sai is an assistant professor at Farmingdale State College. But Sai and Mike joined me to talk about their work with a boutique consulting firm they founded called Talent Metrics. Um, so I started I, I started as a as a faculty member at Farmingdale, and uh, one of the things that attracted me to the school was that they were very comfortable with me going out and consulting. And you know, uh, I couldn't really just go out and you know be Sai Islam consultant. Um, my last name has weird connotations. So it wouldn't, you know, people would think it was like religious consulting or something. That's not really what we do. Uh, and I came up with this with this name, Talent Metrics, and I started doing a little bit of work on my own. Uh, and then Mike and I started talking. Uh, he was kind of transitioning out of his role at Starwood, and we had the really bright idea of just starting our own uh, small consulting practice with our buddy Andre uh, Kajikovsky. And uh, we decided, like, hey, this is cool. We can find some clients. And we just started. So how does a boutique consulting firm find clients? Salespeople? Advertisements? Mike explains. I think the interesting part, and this is something that people ask us about all the time, and then how you started and how you get clients. And it's very strange in our cases uh, because Cy and I have worked internally at places uh, we volunteered our time at a lot of professional and local groups. We built a, a lot of contacts and a lot of people who already knew the quality of our work. Um, when we decided to be out on our own. We just told people, hey, we're on our own, and, and the work happened to have come. Um, obviously, we, we, we still work on gaining clients on our own, but it's not like we have a sales force and, and we're pushing. Sign, I got lucky uh, that it just worked out for us, and, and I think that's part of the reason we decided to do it is we knew so many people. We were working with so many people and we also thought there was a lot of bad work being done out there. Uh, so I thought we could do a better job and be more focused and, and give better customer service and, and just do uh, give people actual deliverables and give them outcomes that they needed instead of selling them, you know, an off the shelf package and, and not giving them any care for the actual issues they were facing at their jobs. And it sounds like working with larger clients comes with some frustration. Yeah, I think it's yeah. I think it's ideal for us because actually we have a couple of those bigger clients, and navigating those waters becomes very, uh, for me, just personally very frustrating um, when you have to deal with executives and high level people and push an idea or something that they're already doing and they've committed millions or tens of millions of dollars to. They're not interested in revamping it, even if it's fatally flawed. 
and you know, as as a as a practitioner and as a PhD in IO, it's it's frustrating. I'm I'm caught between biting my tongue uh, and and deciding to maybe not want to work on that project. And I don't I don't like to work on those projects. So as as I mentioned, working with clients who know that there's room for improvement and are really open to it and want to learn and revamp their process uh, that, you know, and make it better. That's, that's really the best client to work with. Those are the ones that we build really great relationships with and uh, you know, it's fun to work with them. IO tends to focus on quantitative analysis. So I was fascinated to learn more about how Cy and Mike use textual analysis in their consulting practice. I asked them to walk me through a typical project. So the leadership development program is primarily about managers learning how to use, uh, you know, an internal social uh, media tool within the organization and how to use that to motivate employees through, um, you know, through rewards, right? Whether that's comments, likes, whether that's actual money, whatever that might be. So that's what the leadership tool is all about. And what we're trying to figure out, in addition to, the smile sheets or whatever they're doing at the end, we're trying to use the language and the comments of the, um, the trainees to determine their actual sentiments. Like how do they feel about this, this process? You know, is there any consistent terminology that's coming through? For example, if we saw the same term of, you know, learning management software and we saw that it was associated with lower ratings, we might say that maybe you guys need a different LMS system in order to make the process easier. Mike, did you want to add something to that? Uh, I think I think you're hitting on the types of things that that um, we we wind up looking for. Uh, and, but but I think the big thing is, uh, and Sai mentioned it, is that initially we get in the smile sheet for so many clients, including this client, was something they put way too much value on. They're like, people like the program. I'm like, do you know it's working? There was no actual program evaluation going on then for something that, I, I mean, over time, um, hundreds of millions of dollars have been put into. Uh, but they felt that people were satisfied with it, and that was good enough. But they never it was hurting that team and that part of the organization that controls the leadership development because they weren't able to prove their worth and gain traction within the organization. Um, people liked their programs. Again, the smile sheets were good, but there was no, they couldn't actually say whether it was impacting any behaviors or business outcomes and aligning with like the mission and strategy of the organization. And that's where, you know, we brought our, the IO piece comes in and we tell them like, let's ask people like, besides how they like the training, what are they doing afterwards? What did they take away? Has it impacted this, their style of management? Have they used the tool more? You know, actually asking them if, if they see their own changes, then asking the employees, uh, the pe- people working under those managers and supervisors, if they see that as well. And of course, we're using the, the, the qualitative, the open comments, because it gives us considerably more richness uh, in our data. And what's the outcome of all this analysis? How is the business using this information? When we started, it is things have changed. Uh, the big part of it is, as I mentioned, some of the very uh, rudimentary beginning uh, stages are, are from the analyses when we gathered what they had, and we did essentially run the, run the text through the panis uh, just to give them a feel of, you know, I know you guys are ha- uh, you know harboring a lot of. Uh, feelings towards the negative comments. But hey, look, we look through all the things that have been said about this program, all the open-ended comments you have, along with obviously the smile sheet data, which was overwhelmingly, 
you know, fours and fives on, on, on a one through five like it. People like the program. But when they left comments, it seems like those negatives got negative ones were getting traction. And, and when we brought it out to them, like, look, 92 percent of the people have positive comments. The wording is positive. They are suggesting, you know, that, that you keep doing this or that you bring this type of structure to other programs. And then when we got to that, like other 8 percent, it was things like technological issues, like uh, issues with how they deliver the training. Uh, and then some of them were that, oh, it doesn't actually focus on us applying this at work. And those are the kind of things we're able to turn around to them and go, hey, first of all, technology issues are frustrating for people. Uh, if they're taking time out of the day to go in remotely to something, do you guys realize that like, you need to fix this? Like this is something that can be fixed. There's plenty of good software out there. They had just kind of resigned that there would be issues because technology is buggy is kind of what uh, a couple of the executives had said to me. And uh, I told them that that's not acceptable. Like that's turning people off from getting things from this training and from future trainings. And then the second part of that was just to tell them like, you know, they don't feel, they feel like you're giving, you're throwing information at them. You're speaking at them, but you're not talking about its actual application into changing their day-to-day work, which is what you actually want to do. You're trying to change their behavior. You're essentially speaking to them at very high level uh, as if it's, you know, information from a New York times bestseller. And you're giving that to them during the training, but you're not giving them application. And without that, they just feel over overwhelmed and trying to process it themselves. Uh, so that was information we were able to give them. And now as they iterate these programs, uh, they have, uh, they have SMEs come in and they have people internally organization who are higher up and help develop the, the kind of, uh, mission and goals and, and overarching cultural aspects of the organization. And they have them talk about how they see this fitting in. I think it gives these, uh, mid and, and lower level managers much more context. And now the feedback that we get is this is great. It's actually going to be able to help my team. And now we're up to like 96% of the comments we get are, are positive. Um, we are talking with groups of, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 people. So it's still a good amount of, of, uh, work to be done. There's always work to be done, but I think giving them that they didn't even see that they could fix the technology or that people enjoyed the, the content, but they couldn't actually apply it. And again, you know, Ben, if they can't apply it, then right. it's no, no real use for them, but they were blind to that. They went on for years being happy because the smile sheets were good and they saw no reason to, to fix things. And then when they saw the negative comments, they thought they were outliers and they 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 didn't know where to focus their energies. They knew there was a problem, but they they never put all the data in one spot and actually read between the lines and then figured out how to apply the the information that the employees were giving them into something to actually fix it. It seems so simple. We talked a little bit about the tools they use to do the analysis, and I've linked to some of those tools in the show notes. But I was also curious about how you actually get started doing this kind of work. I mean, if you want to know how to conduct a randomized control trial or run a regression, there's a lot of resources out there, but how do you get into text analytics? Okay, so R is like super intimidating for uh, IO people. Um, and I can share what Mike and I went through, which was we just had to work at it in classes until we figured it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the method that we, and, and that's basically what we did. You find uh, an R blog post. And it's about text mining. And, you know, you say, okay, I'm going to try to write this code or I'm going to take somebody else's code and I'm going to replace my variables with it. And then I'm just going to run it. And that, that's what I'm, uh, that's what I would suggest to people is that if you can start with R, you will screw it up, know that, 
uh, because if Mike and I had a had a penny for every time our code <laughs> didn't run, we would we could stop working, right? We could le- legitimately, I think, we could stop working uh, because it it just like if you try to run it, there's always a mistake, and it, it's about like dealing with that sort of struggle. It's like if you wanted to use SPSS but you only wrote syntax. That's basically what it is. Yeah. And if you're okay with SPSS syntax, you can handle our uh, coding. And there's tons of resources online. There's tons of YouTube videos. There's enough stuff out there that you can practice until you get really good. Um, yeah. So number one is like a lot of resilience. And, and that's what it takes. Even in, your, even in our consulting lives now, I don't know if you can tell from hearing the way Mike and I talk about this, it requires resilience. You know, you you kind of have to learn how to work around uh, business people, executives, so that you can use your IO psychology skills. And you know, in the in the world of R and the world of text mining, you've got to have resilience to deal with you know things that go wrong. If you want the simplest possible starting point, uh, I would recommend just buying the SIA, I'm sorry, the SPSS text mining tool because it's a good start. It's a good start. Just like SPSS is good with like every other type of analysis, uh, it's pretty good with the text analysis as well. But I would say that the thing that uh, if you really want a lot of control, especially because a lot of the way that you end up doing your analysis has to do with the dictionary that you mm-hmm. end up using. What, you know, where is the uh, terminology coming from? And there are a lot of places where you can make mistakes in that. Uh, you might have heard. I don't know if you heard about this at all, but there are a lot of applicant tracking software that were making mistakes in terms of scoring, um, you know, applicant resumes mm-hmm. because it would do the data mining on the language that was used, and it would see people's names, and it would see names that the computer program thought were odd or funny, you know, like Tomas or Miguel, something that was non, you know, uh, you know, that was not very common in. Uh, in America, and they would ding that person for having a weird-sounding name. So when you write and create dictionaries, you want to make sure that you're capturing the actual construct that you're looking for. If, you, if it's not in there, you're going to end up making mistakes. So two kind of big takeaways would be, one, uh, start trying to use some of the tools, R or SPSS, and then secondly, think about what you're trying to measure and build a dictionary based around what you're trying to measure. If, you, if you're not sure about it, the text will give you a little bit of direction, but it could pull you in a direction that you're not fully aware of. Mike, mm-hmm. did you want to add anything to that? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll add. I think Cy hit on the second part. Uh, part of the thing with text analytics is you go in and, and you do, we do something with the data we have. And we, I, I like to let that dictate where I go. Um, obviously, the client can give us some idea of, what we can expect and that helps us to hone in on, on what's really, what, what we'll see or what themes they expect. Obviously, if you're dealing with a certain program, certain type of internal language at a company, you want that going in to create a, a general word dictionary so you can parse out what's important and what's not. But definitely it's an iterative process, uh, to get to what really matters and to figure out what floats to the top. And then the next time, a survey goes out or questionnaire goes out or open comments are collected, can use the data I previously have to go back into that. So text analytics is a constantly evolving. The word dictionary I use for uh, when analyzing different client programs and, and different work, it's constantly changing or being tweaked. Uh, and that's important. And I think the second thing is size first thing, which um, we had trial and error over the last you know seven years or so. Uh, 
to learn something that is, is not necessarily a part of the IO skill set or, or IO toolkit for everybody, but you have to be willing to, you have, to have pain and suffering. R is not the most user friendly thing, but there are, there, uh, there are plugins for R. Uh, that make it a little easier. And as I mentioned, you know, now with Google is everyone's friend. Uh, you can look and find resources, including with R itself. If you download a, a text mining package, uh, the information of the person who programmed that is usually in there. Um, sometimes they're in America. Sometimes they're not. Uh, more often than not, they're, they're not here. Uh, most people do speak English. I've been known in the past. Uh, I distinctly remember years ago, early on, finding a program it was probably 2013. And I sent an email off to the author. It was like, hey, I'm having problems running your code. I have the manual that's included. All the R packages usually have like a user manual with some syntax, uh, which makes it pretty helpful to get off the ground. Uh, but I wrote to that person and then wound up building a little bit of a friendship with them and going back and forth. And they kind of helped me use their program for something at a, a job I was doing. Uh, so I think, like like so I said, resilience and curiosity, I think, are the most important parts. You have to be willing to devote time to learning the skill set if it's something that interests you. And I think when I'm able to provide something to clients that isn't just straight up quantitative or isn't something they could get from some other consultant or someone else internally, that's that's the kind of thing that, that makes me smile and put, lets me pat myself on the back because I feel like I'm doing something that's really cool and really different. But again, it was a seven-year journey to be able mm-hmm. to provide that as part of like my toolkit and size toolkit and what talent metrics does. I really enjoyed this conversation with Mike and Sai, And I think it's really cool to learn about this cutting edge stuff from the people who are out there actually doing it. If you enjoy this kind of conversation, do me a favor, tell an IO nerd friend about the show better yet, get out to iTunes and rate the show so other people can find it. You will definitely want to check out the show notes for this episode to connect with Sai and Mike and learn more about the tools they're using in their work. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you again real soon.